You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Back. Join your hosts and... And Kevin, that's me. The second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone, Everyone in, in our, our community, community has value. value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. How are you, Anne? Hello, Kevin. How are you? Uh, pretty good. Hey, do you know what the date is today? There's lots of 11s in it. <laughs> can, can you can you remember? <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the 11th of the 11th, which is called Remembrance Day because on this day mm-hmm. in 1975, 75. John Kerr, representing the Crown, sacked the best Prime Minister we ever had and we should never, ever forget. And I, I will never, never get over that. Can I ask a rude question? Yeah. How old were you when that happened? I, was, uh, I remember um, being in about grade six and the form master coming in and saying, the, uh, the, the country presently has no, no leader. <laughs> and, and we all just looked at each other. But afterwards, I learned all about it and I read books by Jenny Hocking and stuff. And I've the just become. built over the years. The, the, the audacity. It was a conspiracy to oust a, a very active, progressive prime minister. And uh, for anybody who's interested, uh, check up the first 14 days of the Gough Whitlam prime ministership because he and Lance Barnard were the cabinet. He, he swore in Lance Barnard. And mm-hmm. between the two of them, the first 14 days, the list of things they did was amazing. Is that like the benign dictator strategy? Kind of, but it's nice when the dictator's on, on your side and works for you <laughs> for, for a change. Well, there you go, Albanese. You could take a leaf out of Whitlam's book and give us a Green New Deal. And we've talked about this before, about the uh, rushing stuff through, like Gough Whitlam, the pros and cons of it, because he freaked everybody out, freaked the Conservatives out. Certainly got the backlash. And they conspired and eventually got rid of him. Um So it's a question of style, uh, which is something for the Labor government to consider at the moment. Mm-hmm. Hey, and I'd just like to mention, uh, we'd love some feedback. So if you're listening and you have some information or you want to ask a question or you can enlighten us in any way, mm. then send us an email to radiommt at gmail.com. Radiommt, or one word. And look, we might be able to do it live. Uh, we might be sitting here with the email open in front of us or it, it might be that we're doing a pre-record. But, but please, some feedback would be um, very much appreciated. Now, what um, what have we got on for the show this week, Anne? What, what, what have you got planned for us? I'm really looking forward to today's show because we're going to go into some territory that I've been wanting to explore for some time, and that is if you hang out with heterodox economists or even anyone who is not a climate denier, pretty soon you're going to hear people debating the economics behind the slogan People aren't killing the planet. The economy is killing the planet. And I think what we're talking about is the way humans organise themselves to meet their needs. So you could have nomads in prehistoric times. They've got an economy. Or nowadays in Western civilization, we've got an economy. I understand the definition of an economy being the distribution of resources 
in a community. And because we facilitate that with money, people make the mistake of thinking that an economy is a monetary system. Money is used as, as a tool in the distribution of resources, but an economy is a distribution of resources. You can do that without money. Uh, where we live in Australia, our Indigenous population did it for tens of thousands of years. They did fine years. without money for a while, didn't they? So forget about the money part of it and start thinking about distribution of resources. That's a good place to start. Our guest for today's show is the perfect person to talk to, Associate Professor Phil Lawn. And he is an MMT-informed ecological economist, which means he is one of the few economists on the planet who understand that money is not the finite resource. It's the trees and the fish and the land and the atmosphere and the drinking water. And the people. And the culture that the people produce. So all of this stuff of our lives, they're the finite resources, and that's such an important distinction. So the issue around the economy being dysfunctional seems to have to do with this idea of growth. So Phil is about to do our heads in because he certainly did my head in by talking about economic growth versus uneconomic growth. And this is because I asked him why I was hearing so many opposing views about whether or not we should be growing the economy. And some people are saying you need to grow the economy some are saying that you need to degrow the economy and other people are saying you need a steady state economy. And I was thinking that this debate might be people talking at cross purposes because it depends on whether you're talking about this economic growth or whether, like Phil and other ecological economists, you're talking about uneconomic growth. And in fact, he'll do our heads in even more because he's going to make the distinction between sustainable growth and economic growth. So I really wanted to talk to Phil about what exactly is it about today's economy, the Western civilization economy, that is destroying life, Kevin, on this one small blue ball? Well, with that, let's um, throw over to your interview with Associate Professor Phil Lorne. Today, I am so pleased to be having a long overdue conversation with Professor Philip Lorne, who has a special place in the hearts of the MMT community, because he is one of the few people on the planet who has an interest in the intersection between modern monetary theory and ecological economics. Phil is a adjunct professor at Torrens University in Adelaide and also a visiting lecturer in Environmental and Ecological Economics at the University of Adelaide, South Australia. So welcome at long last to the show, Phil. Thanks for having me. I wanted to delve into this whole topic of economic growth. And of course, looming behind this issue is the crisis that we are facing as a globe, as humanity, which is the global warming crisis and also other related crises like chomping through all our resources. And I often hear both economists and non-economists, um, people are often identifying the problem behind these crises that we're facing as the economy. The economy is the problem here. And then some people will even go further and say it's to do with economic growth. And I keep hearing so many different things. So, for example, uh, recently I heard 
Wayne Swan being interviewed on the Australian Union's podcast, which is called On the Job, and that's with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. And of course, Wayne is the uh, the best treasurer ever, and he was offering the, the advice, and this is only back in July, yeah. um, he was offering this advice to the new Labor government, which is that they need to focus on growth and do as much growth as they can. Well, the most fundamental objective has to be to secure quality growth, which delivers the wages and working conditions and the opportunity that drives spending in the economy to continue to to deliver over time quality growth. Wayne Swan, former Australian Federal Treasurer with the Australian Labor Party, from the podcast On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, the 3rd of July, 2022. We're going to be able to underpin growth in this century uh, with the, the same emphasis on, on renewable energy and the role that it can play as an input into production domestically and as an export for this country, uh, securing valuable dollars and underpinning our future prosperity. And we've got uh, an enormous build-up of government debt which in itself has the potential to um, destabilise future growth. But then on the other hand, I hear commentators like Jason Hickel, who is an economic anthropologist and the author of Less is More, and he will say things like growth is the last thing we should be doing. So, Phil, I am so confused about this whole growth issue and I saw you shaking your head when I mentioned uh, what Wayne Swan had to say. So, yeah. so do tell me about what we're talking about when we're talking about economic growth. Well, there's what uh, most people are referring to when they talk about economic growth, but there's what ecological economists refer to when they're talking about economic growth, which is very different. And that thing that we generally talk about when we refer to economic growth is growth in GDP gross domestic product Mm -hmm. and ecological economists believe that if we're talking about the growth of GDP, we're not really referring to economic growth, we're talking about GDP growth. (laughs) (laughs) What are we measuring when we're measuring GDP? Okay, so it's it's a monetary measure. If we're talking about the GDP of a country um, and it's a monetary measure of the final newly produced goods and services produced by, I don't want to sound too technical, domestically located factors of production like labour and capital and raw material. So in a sense, it's a monetary measure of what a country is producing within its borders. And if it's GDP over a year, it's in that particular year. It can be in a quarter, so three months, it can be quarterly. And it's final goods and services. It doesn't include intermediate goods. Now, what's an intermediate good would be something like if, uh, you know, living in Adelaide, we had a couple of car manufacturers not long ago and are not too far away from where the Mitsubishi factory used to be. There are a lot of other little factories located around it which used to produce things like brake pads Mm -hmm. uh, and they would sell them on to Mitsubishi and they'd put those brake pads or what have you into Mitsubishi cars. Uh, Those brake pads would not be measured directly in GDP because it would be measured in the value of the car that's 
finally produced and assembled at Mitsubishi. So if you measured it also as output of that firm, it would be measured twice. Well, that makes sense. So anything that's produced by a firm then sold on to another firm as a component, that component is not a final good, is not measured in GDP. Now, this is where it gets tricky, unless it's exported. Okay. If you think about it, if you're measuring the GDP of a country, you're measuring what constitutes a final good for that country. So if some of those brake pads that that company made are exported, they are measured in Australia's GDP because it's final to Australia. Oh, I see. But (laughs) any component that is imported, so if Mitsubishi were importing brake pads, that would be subtracted from the value of the final car produced at Mitsubishi. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't part of what we were producing. Yep. And the reason for including this and not including that is because you're wanting to work out what a country is producing. When GDP grows, it can be a form of economic growth, but it can also be a form of uneconomic growth. Uh, Economic growth is where you measure the benefits of economic activity, you can measure the costs of economic activity, the difference between the two are the net benefits, and if the net benefits are rising, then as GDP grows, that GDP growth is a form of economic growth. But if the growth in GDP is increasing costs more than it's increasing benefits, which means net benefits are falling, then that's a form of uneconomic growth. Mm -hmm. But it's always assumed that when GDP grows, that that growth is economic. It's not always economic. It's sometimes uneconomic. And for a lot of very wealthy countries, it's become uneconomic. So the growth in GDP is increasing benefits but it's increasing costs at a faster rate. And most of those costs are environmental, ecological and social costs. And as a consequence, for a lot of countries, growth in GDP has become uneconomic rather than economic. So this idea of uneconomic, is that an idea that's specific to ecological economics? Well, not really. Uh, it's, it's just uh, economists tend to bastardise terms. <laughs> When you study economics, you can do microeconomics, which is economics of a part of the economy, or you can do macroeconomics, which is the economics of the entire economy. And when you study microeconomics, um, it's all about what is economic and uneconomic. So if you're running a business, you don't necessarily produce and try and sell as much as possible. You produce and sell more whilst the increase in your revenue is exceeding the increase in your costs and therefore your profit rises. But as soon as the extra costs of producing equal the additional revenue that you earn, then you're maximising your profit. And if you keep producing more, your profit falls. So there's a point where you don't go beyond it. So microeconomics is all about a when to stop rule. There's a when to stop rule. Right. And you stop when the uh, additional costs equal the additional benefits. So you learn that in microeconomics, but as soon as you go to macroeconomics, uh, that's all dropped. <laughs> More is better. The bigger the economy, the bigger GDP is, the better. And incredibly, as simple as you might think it is to measure the benefits at the macro economic level and the costs at the macroeconomic level to see as GDP rises whether benefits are going up 
faster than costs or costs are going up faster than benefits. Mm. There is no formal economic indicator to measure that. There's a thing called the genuine progress indicator, but it's not formally recognised by governments. So even a lot of heterodox economists don't know about it. They're unaware of it. Mm -hmm. It's an indicator designed to work out whether the growth in GDP is economic or uneconomic. And I've done a lot of work on it. And as I said before, for a lot of wealthy countries, the growth in GDP has become uneconomic. So costs and benefits are a hugely important thing to understand. And it sounds like what is a cost and what is a benefit? You're just using common sense, sounds to me. Just using common sense, yes. But like I said before, it's incredible that this type of approach doesn't exist in any formal sense. In any sort of national statistical agency, like the Australian Bureau of Statistics does not calculate the genuine progress indicator or anything that measures the benefits and the costs of what we do at the macro level. It's, it's quite extraordinary to uh, think that that does not exist. Can you explain that institutional inertia around that? Um, not really. I can't explain <laughs> why. The, um, one of the reasons why there's a, such a focus on GDP is because uh, it's sort of a, um, a good news indicator, <laughs> even when it's not good news. Right. As I say to people, if you want to increase GDP because you think GDP growth is is a good thing. Uh, Next time you drive your car, drive it into a brick wall. (laughs) Don't kill yourself, but go fast enough to injure yourself, require medical treatment and require your car to be repaired. Uh, That will increase uh, GDP. Because you're increasing the activity. Yes, that's required to fix you up and fix your car up. And a politician will you know, show a chart showing GDP and it will be going up and they say, there you go, we're better off. <laughs> we're better off because Phil drove his car into a brick wall. Do your bit for Australia. Whereas the GPI, what it shows is this increase in economic activity isn't always making us better off. Sometimes it's uneconomic. Right. And so you have this chart mm-hmm. showing GDP going up and it generally goes up most of the time. And then you've got this other thing that sort of doesn't go up at as fast a rate, and then it sort of levels off, and occasionally it falls. If you're a politician, which line do you want to show? <laughs> uh, so all the focus is on that. Wow. It shows the absurdity of it as a measure. Well, it's, it's not an absurdity of a measure of marketed economic activity. Mm. If that's what you want a measure of, go no further than GDP. But it's not telling us what's happening to our well-being. It's not telling us what's happening to the benefits and costs of what we're doing and whether the benefits are going up faster than costs or costs are going up faster than benefits. What you really should be focusing on from the point of view of well-being is doing whatever is required to increase the GPI. If that means a bit of extra GDP, so be it. If it means a little bit less, so be it. The GDP is just a means to our well-being. It's not an end in itself. So if the end in itself is the increase in the GPI, if it means the GDP falls, big deal, doesn't matter. 
Professor Phil Lorne telling us to get over our GDP obsession. So what I'm learning from this, and it and it's not that complicated, is that GDP is a measure of economic activity. It doesn't tell you whether it's good or bad. It just says if you're involved in economic activity, here's what it's worth. And that's what the politicians use as their measure of, of economic success. So for instance, by their measure, World War II was a very successful time because everybody was employed. There was lots of activity, lots of things being built. The fact that millions of people got killed and, and cities got razed to the ground is irrelevant in their calculation. And the guy who invented the, the GDP, he actually said, do not use this indicator as an indicator of social well-being. So what did the politicians do? <laughs> <laughs> they went straight for the GDP. And by the same token, they would say that the COVID period, um, even though in many respects people were working less, relaxed. Safe from catching the virus when they're at home. Uh, the, the whole environment breathed a sigh of relief and the earth said, thank you very much, less planes flying around. But it's regarded in economic terms uh, as being terrible. So all the talk you hear after COVID, it's all about trying to get that GDP back up as fast as possible. Yeah. And, and the way we do this growth incurs so much damage to the environment. Mm. So Phil has spent much of his career developing an alternative measure, which he calls the Genuine Progress Indicator or the GPI. And he's always at pains to point out that this is not an indicator measuring sustainability. It's an indicator measuring well-being. So you always got to understand what the indicators are doing. Jim Chalmers was talking about a well-being budget um, before uh, Labor won the last election. So he should be definitely looking at Phil Lawn's GPI. And we've got uh, Jacinda Ardern over in New Zealand talking about wellbeing budgets. And so this sounds like there is some comprehension that GDP is not the be-all and end-all. It's just a measure of activity. When you think about the growth and the growth debate, we would want to grow wellbeing. So there are some things that you do want to grow and some things that you don't want to grow. And that's why you have to distinguish between whether you're talking about economic growth or uneconomic growth. Uh, Phil was saying that this microeconomic approach of looking at whether something was economic or uneconomic doesn't exist in the macroeconomic field. Yeah. What surprised me about that is I am so used to hearing the macroeconomists diss the use of microeconomics in looking at macroeconomics because this is where we got the idea of the government having to make a profit. Right. But we can apply microeconomics to macroeconomics in a useful way. When he's explaining the, the microeconomic uh, situation where there's economic growth and uneconomic growth, and, I, and this is, this is uh, what we need to get my head around, is just because there are dollars changing hands doesn't mean that it's, it's in anybody's benefit. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au. You've got to remember too, a lot of what we produce doesn't generate additional benefits. Professor Philip Lawn. Uh, a lot of it is rehabilitative and defensive, and that doesn't increase our well-being. It just maintains it. So what would be an example of those kind of activities? Okay, uh, let's assume with climate change we're going to have an increase in sea level. Most people know enough about the Netherlands to know that the only reason why it exists is because there are dike walls that keep the sea 
from drowning what is a country that's barely above sea level as it is now. Mm -hmm. With sea level rise, more of what constitutes the Netherlands GDP will have to not just maintain the dike wall, but to raise the dike wall. Mm. That raising of the dike wall will not be increasing the well-being of the Netherlands, that will just be maintaining its well-being. Right. So a lot of medical resources used for medical purposes is not beneficial, it's simply defensive. So if we have an economy where a lot of people get injured, we have poor occupational health and safety standards, they lose their arms, they lose their legs, they get chopped off and they have to go into hospital, have them sewn back on again. Assuming we do a really good job at sewing arms and legs back on again, that person is back where they were before. They're no better off. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've used all these resources to sew their arm and leg back on. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's a cost. So you'd be better off minimising the number of legs and arms <laughs> you have to sew back on <laughs> And using those resources, right. if, you, if you could do that, to produce things that are beneficial, that do increase our well-being. And there are indications that a larger percentage of GDP, so we're not just talking about whether GDP is rising or not, an increasing percentage of it is becoming defensive or involves defensive and rehabilitative forms of production. So they're not adding to our well-being. Mm. Uh, and they are just welfare maintaining. So any adaptation measures that we have to undertake in the future to defend ourselves against inevitable climate change will not be adding to our well-being. It will just be maintaining it. Mm. So we're imposing additional costs and we won't even be getting additional benefits. Phil was really emphasising what is lacking for us to get from where we are to hopefully a sustainable economy. And what's lacking is that we have no institutional mechanisms for understanding what Australia's biological capacity is and what our economic footprint is. And those things would help us to create a sustainable economy. And I think about that, Kevin, in, in contrast to all the institutional mechanisms that the neoliberals have put in place. So we've got the Australian Office of Financial Management, we've got these sovereign wealth funds, we've got a superannuation industry employing 30,000 people doing ridiculous... They're basically just uh, concentrating on the money. They're, they're not concentrating on the resources. Yeah. And, and that comes from this um, historic view, which is becoming undone now. That, uh, that we as a species are separate from nature and that nature is there for us to exploit. Mm -hmm. These institutional mechanisms are part of how we get there to this, I'll call it the sustainable post-carbon, post-capitalist economy. And they're such an unsexy topic. <laughs> I can't imagine anyone getting out on the street with a sign saying, we need better institutional mechanisms. I would. <laughs> you would. Do you want to get a, a couple of T-shirts made up? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it, Kevin. <laughs> And in the meantime, let's hear more from Phil Lorne. In fact, he's got some good news for us. Excellent. Going back to this idea of economic versus uneconomic growth, mm -hmm. I'll just run an example past you and you can tell me if I'm, I'm on the right track here. Like, let's say we were talking about how many fish Australia is pulling out of the sea. And let's say in the first year, in year one, we pulled 50 tonnes of fish out of the sea. And then in year two, we pulled 60 tonnes of fish out of the sea. Would that 
be thought of in mainstream economics as economic growth? We've pulled more fish out. Yes, that's considered a final product. It can be processed and and go. But But let's assume we're eating these fish. (laughs) Then uh, that would constitute an increase in production. So uh, essentially GDP would be would be going up. So then yep. that extra 10 tonnes of fish from year one to year two, let's say that it was farmed, let's say in some pristine waters in Tasmania, and so it was actually polluting a river system in Tasmania, Yeah. then is that when as an ecological economist you would start to say that that was uneconomic growth because that extra 10 tonnes of fish was polluting a river system? Uh not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the benefits have gone up because we do get to consume more, 60 instead of 50, assuming it's not exported. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so assuming it's eaten by Australians. So the benefits will go up, but uh, the costs are going up as well because now there's more pollution. Uh, perhaps it's damaging the local ecosystem and it might affect the, um, the quality of the water used to irrigate crops or what have you. So the costs would be going up. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the benefits would be going up. But if the costs were going up faster than the benefits, uh, then that growth would be uneconomic. Right. Right. So we've got extra benefits, we've got extra costs, and if by going from 50 to 60 the costs were going up faster than the benefits, then that would be uneconomic growth. If the costs were going up at a slower rate than the benefits, then that growth would be economic. But this is where it gets a little bit tricky. That's just looking at GDP growth from an economic, uneconomic perspective. Of course, that's very different to looking at it from a sustainability perspective. It may well be that 50 tonnes is the maximum that you can extract on a sustainable basis. There's a thing called maximum sustainable yield So the fish stock can recover, then your stock will stay constant over time and you can extract 50 tonnes forever. Mm -hmm. If you go beyond it, say 60 goes beyond it, so you get 50 new tonnes every year but you're extracting 60, you're going to start depleting the stock and that's unsustainable. Right. That's very different to whether it's economic or uneconomic. So there is a difference between understanding what's sustainable and what's economic. Yes, But what we know is that at the macroeconomic level, growth in GDP becomes uneconomic before it becomes unsustainable. And you've proven that through your GPI. Well, even just using economic logic, it's clear that 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 would happen and the GPI just confirms it. Mm -hmm. As you approach ecological limits then the ecological costs start to rise at an increasing rate. They don't just increase, they increase at a very, very rapid rate. So if they're rising at a very, very rapid rate, the additional costs will start to exceed the additional benefits even before you cross that ecological line in the sand. So that's kind of good news in a sense. If we were actually measuring these costs and benefits and understanding when we're having economic growth and uneconomic growth, Mm -hmm. then the good news is that we would not want to do uneconomic growth. And by not having uneconomic growth, we would probably have a sustainable economy. Yes. So if we just stopped at the point where any further growth becomes uneconomic, then we would stop short of 
uh, crossing the ecological line in the sand. Mm. So the GDP should just be what it is. It's the GPI that we focus on. Right. And, and how does degrowth relate to a steady state economy? Yeah, steady state is where the economy is neither growing or degrowing. So you and I, we're, we're, we're adults now. We're, we're, we're steady states. <laughs> a child's not. So um, economy should just be like every other physical system, uh, a period of growth. Then you stop growing, but you don't stop developing. So you can still develop as a human being without having to grow. We don't stop developing just because we stop physically growing. So steady state is where what you produce exactly equals what you consume. The overall stock of stuff that makes up the economy in pure physical terms doesn't change, but you can still improve the quality. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. Did you understand that, Ben? <laughs> I still am trying to get my head around the difference between economic growth and sustainable growth. Like we, we understand what sustainable growth is, like you're talking about with the fish analogy. If you're taking 60 tonne of fish and that's eating into the regeneration stock, hmm. then that's unsustainable. I think what Phil is saying is that when you start getting to that point, there are going to be costs that become involved, that are going to start becoming apparent. Mm. My understanding is that when you start reaching unsustainable levels, the amount of effort are going to become uneconomic and it's kind of like a warning sign before you trip over. They're going to become more obvious. Now, interestingly, the, the neoliberal argument back in the day regarding all of this sustainability stuff was they said, look, you just plough ahead. You go for growth, you uh, rip stuff out of the ground, uh, you turn it into something profitable, you don't worry about the consequences of it right there and then because what will happen is after you've made all your profits, you'll be able to go back with those profits and clean everything up. Mm. That, that was their fair income argument. It was, it was like, okay, don't worry about all this mess. The ends will justify the means. Yeah, and then, of course, some of them go broke and, then, and some of them abscond. And, As and we're hearing about with the oil rigs and so on at the moment where they've got a decommission and the companies go broke before they actually go in and clean up the mess that they promised to clean up. Interestingly, I had a discussion with a far-right person the other day who was talking about the wind towers and he said that it was going to be a disaster. He said that they were going to be made redundant and when they went redundant, the private owners of the wind towers were going to leave them where they would deteriorate and leave this huge mess that had to be cleaned up because they're huge and very hard to get rid of. He's got a point actually because we've seen it happen in other industries. So that's what they call making sure that you look at the total life cycle of all the infrastructure. Yeah, my my answer to this fairly right-winged person was that they should all be owned by the state and then Uh the state (laughs) would have to go and clean them up because uh, they'll always still be there. Which is kind of interesting because, um, uh, you know, Dan Andrews is talking about um, reinstituting the, the SEC, the State Electricity Commission, which I just think is a fantastic idea. State-owned energy, of course, when it's a natural monopoly. Uh, interestingly, the same right-wing person thought that the state should own critical infrastructure like power and communications and transport. He said they were too important to hand over to the private Great. sector. Some common ground. Yes, yes. Interesting speaking to um, right-wingers on occasion. Anyway, I'm in no doubt that we should be paying lots of smart people to be measuring what's economic, what's uneconomic, what's sustainable, and thinking through all these ideas that we're talking about. So 
there is an indicator that allows us to work out where we are in relation to that ecological line in the sand. It's called the ecological footprint. Mm-hmm. And its sort of counterpart is a thing called ecological biocapacity. Do you want to have a go at just explaining those quickly? All right. So ecological footprint is, if we're talking about the ecological footprint of a country, it's uh, measuring that country's resource demands, natural resource demands. And uh, the biocapacity is uh, what the natural environment of that country can supply on a sustainable basis. So the ecological line in the sand would be where ecological uh, footprint is exactly equal to biocapacity, exactly equal. There's an organisation called Global Footprint Network that calculates the ecological footprint and biocapacity of every country and also at the global level. And what they've shown is that global ecological footprint is 1.7 times global biocapacity. Mm. So they have a thing called overshoot day, which usually occurs around about August. And that's the point at the year where the ecological footprint exceeds the biocapacity at the global level for the year. If the ecological footprint is less than the biocapacity, then you've got an ecological surplus. If the ecological footprint is greater than the biocapacity, you've got an ecological deficit. About two-thirds of all countries are in ecological deficit. About one-third have an ecological surplus. Does that include that we're allowing other species to share the planet with us? Well, that's a good point. So you might argue that we should be something smaller than where ecological footprint equals biocapacity. In fact, uh, a famous biologist, E.O. Wilson, he believes that we need to set aside about 50% of the planet for habitat for other species. Mm. So about the early 1960s, mid-1960s was the point where uh, the ecological footprint at the global level was about 75% of global biocapacity. And I think we reached the point where uh, we had ecological footprint equal to biocapacity uh, around about the early 1970s. Happen a little more. So we've been in ecological deficit globally since about the early 1970s uh, and now the ecological footprint is 70% larger than biocapacity. So, which means that the rate at which we use resources at the global level, the rate at which we generate pollution is such that in order for it to be sustained in the long term, we would need 1.7 Earths, we've only got one. So the only way we're able to extract the resources and emit the waste that we do is because we're eating away at natural capital. We're depleting stocks of fish, of forests and so forth. So we've gone past that ecological line in the sand. 
which means that if we were to measure a GPI at the global level, which hasn't been done, uh, it may well uh, be in decline. Because I said before, growth becomes uneconomic before it becomes unsustainable. So a global GPI probably would have started falling in the 1960s. So if you know anything about the first and second laws of thermodynamics, any natural resource that enters the economy will exit the economy eventually as waste in the same quantitative volume. That's the first law of thermodynamics, the law of conservation of matter and energy. So what goes in, goes out. It's the second law, the entropy law, that ensures that the quality of the matter and energy that exits the economy is worse than the quality of what it was when it entered the economy. So eventually, in the long, 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 long term, we will chew through all of the planet's resources. No, 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 no. As long as... So we've got a yellow thing in the sky... Okay. ...which provides free energy, and that allows the qualitatively good stuff that enters the economy, natural resources, as long as it's within biocapacity, mm. we can have resources entering... The economy, uh, 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 there's a maximum flow that can enter the economy on a sustainable basis. Mm -hmm. All right, so that ecological footprint, if we go beyond that, then we just start depleting stocks and we do destroy the natural environment and, and our ability to extract resources. Eventually, um, we just deplete the stock until it's. Oh, okay, so just because we're creating waste, that doesn't mean that we're depleting the environment. No, we can't avoid waste, it's impossible to avoid. We can have a rate of throughput that can be sustained forever. There's a limit on how large that rate of throughput can be, and that limits what we can produce and consume. GDP is what you produce. So GDP is what you add to the economy. So there's a limit on what that can be because there's a limit on the throughput that can be ecologically sustained. Right. The problem with uh, climate change is that we're generating more CO2 than the planet can safely absorb and assimilate. It can assimilate carbon, it can do that. We, we know the planet can assimilate it. When uh, Scott Morrison walked into Parliament House with a lump of coal <laughs> and said coal is our friend, he was right. Coal is nature's carbon capture and storage. <laughs> but it's meant to stay there. There is how nature can absorb and assimilate carbon <laughs> in a rock, basically. Right, right. It's because nature absorbed this carbon, stored it in the ground in the form of coal and oil, that human beings exist. It allowed the planet to evolve in a way, provide an environment for human beings to exist. Uh -huh. Now we're reversing that <laughs> and we're going to create a world where human beings and other creatures can't exist. Well, you heard it here first on our show here uh, that an ecological economist is actually not afraid of coal. So. <laughs> I'm only afraid of it being burnt, that's all. Right. Mm. It's lovely stuff, yeah. If, if Scott Morrison's waving at you, though, you're not afraid of it. <laughs> <laughs> there are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. 
The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Now, we're, now we're, Phil Lawn. Phil Lawn. No matter how unpopular it might be, Phil does say what he thinks. And he took us into that area where there's this debate around population versus consumption as the causes of climate change. Ooh, okay. Let's have a listen. Growth is killing the planet more than anything else. It is the number one killer of the planet. We can change the way we do things, that helps to an extent, but it's the scale at which we do things which is the true destroyer of the planet. Well, at least we know what's going on and we know there are solutions. Yes, although it's going to be difficult because no one talks about anything but growing GDP. You boost productivity, you boost national economic growth. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese speaking to the National Press Club, 29th of August 2022. Our plan is a growth agenda. Understandably, the society wants the government to finance spending on a whole range of social services, including disability, aged care, education and and defence. So there are increasing demands on the public purse. Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe, speaking on ABC's 7.30, 14th of June 2022. It's harder to find out how we're going to pay for that. So the options, as Stephen Kennedy, the Treasury Secretary, talked about last week, is we can make sure the economy grows very strongly so that the pie is bigger and so there'll be more funding for everything. That's the best option. So ecological economists talk about the notion of economic growth and uneconomic growth because uh, there's a lot of focus on the way we do things that there needs to be a transition towards renewable energy and so forth and away from fossil fuels to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But uh, ecological economists believe it's not just the way we do things, it's the physical scale at which we do things which is part of the problem. Mm. So it's that throughput. That's what ecological economics focuses on. It's the physical scale at which we do things that matters as much as the way we do things. Mm. So as I say to people, wouldn't it be wonderful if global greenhouse gas emissions this year were 45% of what they will actually be? On New Year's Eve, we would be dancing in the street. (laughs) Okay. If per capita global emissions this year were exactly as they will be this year and the population of human beings on Earth was exactly the same as it was in 1964, in the year I was born, global greenhouse gas emissions this year would be 45% of what they will be. Because the year I was born, there were 3.6 billion people on Earth, and 
early next year, it's going to pass 8 billion people. Paul Ehrlich referred to it as the population bomb. It's ticking away. It is something that has to be dealt with. It's a bit of a taboo subject dealing with population, but it needs to be dealt with uh, because a lot of what people talk about is how we deal with the per capita emissions. How do we do we move towards renewables to reduce emissions per person? Well, you can reduce emissions per person by 5%, but if the number of people on Earth increases by more than 5%, the total increases. And in fact, I've done a bit of a study and I've shown that over the last 50, 60 years, we've reduced the throughput intensity of a dollar's worth of gross world product, so that's GDP at the global level. We've, we've halved it. We, we use half as many resources to produce a dollar's worth of gross world product through technological progress. Wow. Per person, gross world product has doubled. So they've cancelled each other out. So uh, we use half as many resources to produce a dollar's worth of gross world product, but on average, everyone's gross world product has doubled. So that's cancelled each other out. So if the population of human beings on Earth was the same as it was in the year I was born, the ecological footprint at the global level would be the same as it was in 1964. And I mentioned in 1964, it was about 75% of global biocapacity. We would be within the biocapacity of the planet. The only reason why it's 1.7 times what it is is because the world's population has grown by a factor of about 2.2 since I was born. You always want a house, a two-bedroom, a little car. So the remaining increase in the ecological footprint that's due entirely, purely and simply to population growth. Uh, global greenhouse gas emissions would be 45% of what they are. Global rates of deforestation would be 45% of what they are. All other forms of pollution, all other forms of resource use would be 45% of what they are. Does that take into account the fact that it's Western countries that have a higher per capita use of resources? That's an interesting point. Western countries need to do a lot about their per capita rates of resource consumption and waste generation because it's well above the global average, but there are a lot of countries that must do something about their population. Mm -hmm. So there are some people who only look at the per capita levels of emissions and have been saying that India in terms of planetary boundaries has only recently gone
beyond its greenhouse gas emissions planetary boundary. Well, that's not an appropriate way to look at it. India is the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases on Earth. Mm. How is that so? I'll tell you, there's 1.3 billion people in India. That's why it's the third largest emitter. Australia emits far more than it should given its population because our per capita emissions are too high. Mm. We have to deal with both. And most people only look at per capita emissions, rate of resource use and so forth. That only works to an extent. And, and the reason why population is important is because you can only reduce emissions so much. So if you're maintaining an economy, remember things are going to wear out, things will become waste, things have to be replaced. Mm-hmm. An economy to be maintained at a particular steady state requires a throughput of matter and energy, uh, but there's a limit on what that rate of throughput can be and remain sustainable. And if population is growing, then... Uh, If you reach those limits of what you can produce, it will mean that the per capita rate of consumption will fall. And it would mean if population continues to grow, it will fall below subsistence level and we just impoverish ourselves. I thank you again, Phil, for coming on the show and um, hope to get you back again sometime. Thanks, Anne, and all the best. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. It's not either or, Kevin. We've got to look at consumption and population growth. It's a contentious issue, isn't it? Because uh, essentially what you're saying is we need to cull. The population. They're, they're, the, <laughs> the, the, the only. Um, that's where people's minds go to, isn't it? Yeah. It's the final solution. Well, the only country that's um, been responsible about that has been China with their uh, one child policy. Yeah. People might uh, criticize China uh, about this and that, but in terms of being a responsible world citizen, they're probably way ahead of a lot of us in, in many respects. It's such a complicated issue because the uh, developing world, their population is decreasing, just not at a fast enough rate. You know, there are very benign ways to decrease your population, such as educating women and girls. I did have a quick Google to check what Phil was saying about India. And there's this website that has this great name called Worldometers. And this website was saying that the uh, total carbon emissions in 2016, the USA was emitting 5 billion tonnes and India was emitting 2.5 billion. So that does put India up there as a big emitter. And I just wanted to run something past you, Kevin. Yeah. Which is Anne's theory of why we are having this debate about whether it's population or whether it's consumption. And I was trying to reconcile this statistic with what I've heard people like Jason Hickel say, which is that the global north has caused about 90% of the climate breakdown. Hmm. Well, how do you reconcile those? And I thought, oh, maybe it's that old thing that MMT economists are always talking about when they say, don't confuse your stocks with your flows. So what we have is a stock of carbon in the atmosphere 
that is 90% the fault of the Western countries. But the ongoing flow of adding more carbon is going to be caused by countries with large populations. So that's your flow of added carbon into the atmosphere. And they're also developing. So they're now consuming more than they used to as well. And they say that they have that right. Mm. And there's a, there is a good point to that. There's a good case to be made. So what could happen is that the Western countries rapidly decrease their use so they give these other countries the space in the atmosphere. Yeah, well, they, we're going to have to come up with um, a solution because uh, we are just another species on the planet. Species come and go. <laughs> we will wipe ourselves out if we keep doing what we're doing. On future shows, we will have to have more of a, a look at what it looks like for countries to be degrowing their GDP because the degrow word sounds so ominous, but I've got the optimistic view that we will probably end up with much more better we will probably end up with... Uh, I think much much betterer is the term you're after. <laughs> or more betterer. <laughs> we, we, will, we will have more betterer lifestyles once we uh, degrow because we won't be running around consuming. We'll actually be a bit more relaxed. It, 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 it really does um, require a, a fundamental shift in, in the mindset. Uh, we are a capitalist society that has been taught to consume. It's all around us and it's almost inescapable. That's when you have capitalism in control. We're going to head for post-capitalism, post-growth. Yeah, so there's, there's going to have to be a massive uh, change of mindset. And, you know, that would be – you'd like to think it could happen. And then, then you speak to people, 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 and you realise it's not going to happen. People, people are slow to change. We've been talking about this environmental crisis for decades, mm. even right now when it's smacking us in the face. And there's fires and there's – floods and coastal erosion and well we can all have the conversations that shift that and look to some leadership and some institutional mechanisms kevin <laughs> i don't know is, is, is it wrong to get a bit like uh, we're going to run into the wall mm. and it, there's going to be a correction uh, one way or another the first thing we need to do is really face our fears because that's a way to get through to positive action Otherwise, you go into denial or you go into giving up. You know, and I've, I feel like while there's still breath, you still look for how you can deal with it. But then you have to, you have to look at just how we, how we behave as a herd. And, you know, we're not, we're not that bright. You've got Kevin the <laughs> pessimist and the optimist. Well, I wouldn't call myself a pessimist. I'm not always an optimist, but I think mm -hmm. I'm becoming more of a realist these days. Where's the happy medium? Well, Kevin, we have to get out of here. We'll be back on this topic again, I hope. But Always great to speak to Phil Lorne too. So thank you very much, Phil Lorne, for, for your time. He makes a lot of sense. So thank you, Phil, for um, being on the show. We'll see you in a couple of weeks then, Kevin. Catch you soon, Anne. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself, so if you've got all the pleasure... What, well, I, no, I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure, that's great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was pleasurable for me. I think we
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.